0: Welcome to this episode of the Disease De Your podcast on the topic of PPID in horses with Harold Schott, DVM, PhD, DACVIM. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Echo Management. The Disease De Your podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Schott is a professor of large animal clinical sciences at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. He's a native of Ohio. Who was an avid polo player through high school and college. The very first month Dr. Schott was in practice his boss went on vacation and he was left to manage a horse with chronic renal failure. It was that early case that stimulated a career-long interest in the urinary tract and electrolyte balance in exercising horses for Dr. Schott. He studied the effect of exercise on kidney function during his PhD. Dr. Schott became involved in endurance racing as an official veterinarian, and he's completed a 25-mile endurance ride. He often travels to collect information from endurance races in Michigan, as well as nationally and internationally. Over the past couple of decades, he's developed an interest in endocrine issues from the demand of clients with older horses that have PPID. Dr. Schott was involved in the FDA trial for percent Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Schott. Thanks for having me. As we know, Cushing's disease is also known as pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction, or PPID. Two primary clinical signs are abnormal thirst and excessive urination. How does this disease fit in with your interest in kidney
1: function? Well, one of the problems with kidney disease is a loss of the ability to produce a concentrated urine. So that often happens before the animals actually start to accumulate waste products in the blood elevated BUN and creatinine that we call azotemia. And so um, I, early on in my time at Michigan State University, was interested in the mechanism of the polyuria and polydipsy or PUPD that accompanies Cushing's disease because um, several mechanisms might be involved there. They might have a high blood glucose and be diabetic is one of the possible manifestations of Cushing's disease. And if they have increased blood glucose, then they would Uh, have that be higher than their renal threshold for glucose reabsorption, have glucose come out in the urine and have what we know as an osmotic diuresis develop. But actually when we look at horses with PPID, the hyperglycemia, diabetes sort of secondary complication is relatively uncommon. So it doesn't appear that that's um, the primary mechanism of the PUPD. Another mechanism that's been touted is that the enlargement of the pituitary gland with PPID starts to compress the posterior pituitary or what we call the pars nervosa, and inhibits production and release of a hormone called antidiuretic hormone or arginine vasopressin. And that's very important to work on the collecting ducts in the kidneys to make a concentrated urine. So we actually did some water deprivation tests on some of the PUPD horses with Cushing's disease to see if that was part of the mechanism. And it actually looked like it was a relatively uncommon mechanism as well. So actually, uh, you know, the PUPD that we see in horses with PPID it can affect maybe up to about a third of PPID horses. The mechanism of that is still a little bit undetermined in terms of what's the primary mechanism of uh, that. So, but that was one of the early links for my interest in 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 studying PPID affected horses, as well as um, just having, you know, clients and veterinarians in our practice area uh, dealing with horses with PPID that also had chronic laminitis saying that, you know, we needed to find uh, some more effective treatments for this disorder about 20 years ago or so, and that was before Percent was on the market, and we had uh, several different types of of medications to potentially treat PPID.
0: Okay, and so how common is PPID in general practice today?
1: So that's a good question. Um, PPID still is under-recognized in general practice. Um, There's been a A couple of good epidemiologic studies looking at populations of horses. One of the first ones was in the northeast part of Australia and then also over in the United Kingdom. And those studies revealed that about 20 percent of horses over 20 years of age have potentially uh, some uh, abnormalities and clinical signs, as well as hormonal abnormalities, supportive of PPID, and it looks like that increases to about thirty percent of horses that are over thirty years of age. So it's it's really quite a common disorder of older horses that still is uh, under recognized by the horse owning population and um, still under under recognized by veterinarians in in general practice. I think. And what about in younger horses?
0: I know horses down to age five. I think have been diagnosed with PPID.
1: Yeah, I think probably those young horses, um, it's a little unclear what how young they can become. But um, one of the ways I think about PPID is to compare it to a, a disease in humans that has a similar pathophysiology, and that's actually Parkinson's disease. So PPID is a little bit different in horses than Cushing's disease in dogs and cats and in people. Um, In horses, it's best thought of as a brain disease where we have some degeneration, probably from what's known as oxidative stress or oxidative damage is one of the components of the neurons in the hypothalamus that control the intermediate lobe of the pituitary gland. And as those dopaminergic neurons degenerate, it allows the pars intermedia melanotropes to proliferate, to undergo hyperplasia and hypertrophy in the gland slowly grows. And those changes can start probably in in a population of horses, you know, in the age, a range of 5 to 10 to 15 years of age. But for them to develop outward clinical signs of the disease, the classic one, again, being the long hair coat that fails to shed, it may lag um, by 15 or 20 or even 25 years, where the degeneration of the hypothalamus uh, neurons and the proliferation of the pars intermedia ends up resulting in outward manifestations of clinical disease. So when you talk about young horses with it, I tend to think again, uh, again, the comparison to Parkinson's disease in people, which is also uh, degeneration of dopaminergic neurons in a sort of different part of the brain. And that's why we you know, see different clinical signs with Parkinson's disease compared to horses with PPID. But the classic example I use is michael j fox who is sort of a young onset of parkinson's disease and then muhammad ali who had a later onset of parkinson's disease and muhammad ali probably had a combination of traumatic brain injury from the boxing uh, you know uh, decades that he did on top of the parkinson's disease and so we know that um in people that there are different ages at which these disorders can develop or the Parkinson's disease can develop. And so I think that same thing happens with horses and PPID. And it makes common sense that the younger the horse that starts to show clinical signs of PPID, the more serious the generation of hypothalamic dopaminergic neurons is. And our ability to control and turn that horse around is going to be, uh, or that horse can have a more guarded prognosis for, you know, improvement over time and tend to have more severe complications. Sorry, long-winded answer to your question. No,
0: that's very interesting. I, that, this is why we want to talk to you, Dr. Schott, is we want to learn these things. So what are, you mentioned a couple of clinical signs. So what are the clinical signs that a veterinarian
1: will normally see with PPID? So uh, probably some of the earliest clinical signs with PPID are going to be, you know, a little bit of longer hairs. We call them guard hairs, like in the jugular groove on the back of the forelimbs, the back of the hind limbs. And, you know, and then uh, horses will perhaps just start to become a little bit slow to shed their, their winter hair coat as the spring comes on. So when I'm, you know, asking clients about uh, that, you know, I, one of the first questions I ask is, you know, did your horse shed out, you know, well last spring or last summer? You know, when they they say, oh, shed out really slick, really like he is in years before, then I'm much less concerned if they say, well, you know, it took him a couple extra weeks or a little bit longer to shed out. And if I look at the horse and it's July and he's got some long hairs on under his jaw and the jugular groove and behind the forelimbs and the hind limbs. And I start to sort of think, you know, we probably have some early signs of PPID. And then the other earlier signs I think that we'll see are somewhat difficult to distinguish between is it just because the horse is getting a little bit older and perhaps exercise a little bit less. So we'll start to see perhaps a little bit of loss of the top line or apaxial musculature uh, along the back and over the rump might be one of the signs we'll see. And then, you know, um, horses might just start to become a little bit lethargic. Just don't have quite the same energy level so is that because he's now 20 years old or is it because of ppid and that's where we then start to, to determine or decide whether we start to do some you know actual endocrine testing to see if we have supportive uh hormonal abnormalities that could support a diagnosis of ppid the most devastating clinical sign is laminitis and that's the one that um you know will certainly affect the the potential life of the horse if we get laminitis that's not well controlled and that's where it's a little bit uh, difficult to uh, sort out is it ppid or the other you know major endocrine disorder we see in horses especially horses that are getting overweight is insulin dysregulation So those are our two big endocrinological disorders we have. And there's some overlap because both of those can be have laminitis is one of the predominant clinical signs. And when you're working on diagnosis of these horses,
0: where do you start? And let's maybe start with a horse that, you know, has those mild signs. You see the hairs are not uh, shedding as quickly. You notice uh, maybe a little loss of top line as, as it's getting older. So where would you start with
1: diagnosis with those horses? So obviously the first thing is, are there any clinical signs that could support PPID? We certainly don't recommend just screening horses for PPID just because they're 15 or 16 years of age if they don't have any concurrent you know, clinical signs that make you suspect. And if they do have some clinical signs that make you suspect, um, the probably the first screening tool that we would do is measure plasma ACTH concentration or uh, adrenocorticotropin concentration. And that can tend to be elevated in horses with PPID. And over the probably the past decade, um, there's a, been a group of us interested in endocrine disorders called the endocrinology group. And uh, we've gotten together every couple of years with the support actually of boringer to produce a brochure that's available on a website at Tufts University. If you look at the equine endocrinology group, you can find these. And these brochures are sort of uh, algorithms to work through, you know, diagnosis and management of PPID. And so every two years we get together and they're, you know, keeps evolving in our understanding. But again, the, the first screening tool is just to measure plasma ACTH concentration. In the early stages of disease, oftentimes plasma ACTH concentration remains normal. So in that situation, if we're still suspicious and we want to further evaluate it over the last probably decade, we've started with a a dynamic test. And that dynamic test is to administer thyrotropin-releasing hormone, or TRH, to a horse, and um, that can stimulate the melanotropes in the pars intermedia to secrete more of the pro-opio uh, melic um, which is POMC peptide, and a fragment of that then becomes ACTH, and so we'll see an exaggerated response to TRH stimulation testing in horses with PPID. So we'll go ahead and and uh, give a dose of of TRH and take a blood sample 10 minutes later and see if we've had a, an increase in the, um, in the ACTH concentration.
0: Work on your summer scan. Enter for the chance to win a Global Pocket Reader Plus in Merck Animal Health's Sizzlin' Summer Sweepstakes giveaway. The Global Pocket Reader Plus is an ISO compliant universal microchip scanner for horses. It is able to read and store up to 3,000 unique microchip identification numbers, and displays and stores microchip temperatures when reading biothermo microchips. Enter before August 31, 2022 by going to www.merc-animal-health-usa.com forward slash species forward slash equine forward slash summer sweepstakes.
1: There's a bit of a nice history story lesson for the first, maybe our students, especially that might be listening to this podcast. Um, Professor Jill Beach, who had her career at New Bolton Center, was very interested in Cushing's disease many years before a lot of us were. And um, one of the early studies that she did on horses with BPID is she wanted to know if they horses with, you know, at that point called Cushing's disease also had dysfunction of their thyroid gland and had some thyroid problems so she and some colleagues administered trh to some horses with ppid to look at their thyroid hormone responses and she found that their thyroid glands actually were working fine and they put out a normal amount of thyroid gland or thyroid hormones however almost by serendipity excuse me she also measured the output or increase in blood cortisol concentration and what she found is that the horses with ppid had an increase in cortisol concentration, whereas older horses without PPID did not. And that, uh, if we think back to how the the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis works, the um, uh, the, uh, hypothalamus is gonna release uh, corticotropin-releasing hormone to affect the pituitary gland to release ACTH. And then it's gonna take a couple hours for that ACTH to affect the adrenal glands, increase cortisol production. <clears throat> Excuse me again. So she uh, was looking at cortisol increases um, two hours after administration of the TRH, and found again that they were increased. Now we've gone an earlier step because ACTH is going to be released uh, before the increase in cortisol, and that's why we can do that testing at ten minutes. And then the big question is: Well, what does TRH have to do with all this? Because we should use the thyrotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus to stimulate the pituitary gland to release TSH to affect the thyroid gland to release hormones. Well, over time, it was recognized that the melanotropes in the pars intermedia of the pituitary gland that are increased in number and size with PPID actually also have TRH receptors on these melanotropes. And so those melanotropes are responsive to the TRH. So it was a little bit by serendipity that that whole testing scheme was able to be developed. And then other investigators more recently have, uh, you know, documented the TRH response uh, leading to the increase in ACTH with PPID horses on that shorter time course.
0: Well, that's I had never heard that complete story. Thank you for sharing that this morning. It's many decades I've been doing this. So let's go back a little bit to the pathophysiology of Cushing's. I know you've covered that a little bit, but let's take it just a little bit step by step, especially maybe for younger veterinarians or students or techs
1: who are listening to this. Yeah, again, so the the first thing that I like to do is try to compare um, Cushing's disease in horses, or that we now call pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction, to Cushing's disease in dogs or people. So they're a little bit different because in dogs and in people, the most common cause of Cushing's disease is spontaneous development of a hormone-secreting tumor in the pituitary gland, and that tumor secretes ACTH without the stimulus from the hypothalamus. So it's a a spontaneously-developing tumor that secretes extra ACTH and then leads to the increase in cortisol in the blood. That's actually in the anterior lobe, also known as the pars distalis, of the pituitary gland. Okay? And that's not what happens in horses. Again, in horses, I tend to think of PPID as more of a primary brain disease with loss or degeneration of these dopaminergic neurons that innervate the pars intermedia. And those dopaminergic neurons, their role is to actually slow down the pars intermedia production of this large peptide POMC and keep it in check. So as we lose that sort of inhibition by those dopaminergic neurons, we start to see unregulated hypertrophy and enlargement of that pars intermedia. And again, that's gonna take years and years to develop. And when it gets finally big enough and we get enough hormone being secreted, unregulated, it goes ahead and starts to show some of the clinical signs. Now, that POMC is a large peptide released by the pars intermedia, and it's also then cleaved into different fragments, one of those fragments being ACTH. Another fragment is uh, MSH, melanocyte-stimulating hormone, and that's been used in research to look for elevations in MSH to also support a diagnosis of PPID. Another one of the fragments of that POMC peptide is beta-endorphin. And so we think about beta-endorphin is in one of the endogenous opioids and increases after you go for a long run and makes you feel good. And some early work also showed uh, much higher concentrations of beta-endorphin in the spinal fluid of horses with PPID compared to horses with aged horses without PPID. So sometimes we tend to think of these horses with PPID also as sort of having a very docile disposition a little bit lethargic, and, um, you know, very easy for all the grandkids to hop around and play with. And that might be actually partly due to this large uh, amount of beta endorphin that's going around, um, you know, affecting them that way. So when we start to treat horses with PPID, with a a dopaminergic agonist, the, the pergolide or percent is the way it's labeled, one of the earliest clinical signs we might actually see is that these older horses tend to have uh, more energy. They tend to wake up a little bit and feel better. And all of a sudden, the, the the old horse, the shaggy horse that was really safe for the kids to hang on now actually might become a little bit more active and have to be a little bit careful about that. And we've actually had some anecdotes from owners that say they're old horses that act like they're five and 10 years younger within the first couple of weeks of starting them on medication. And that's one of the reasons we've um, sort of developed the term PPID for horses instead of Cushing's disease is to recognize that difference in pathophysiology. So it's the pars intermedia, so pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction. And adding that term dysfunction on the end of it also says, hey, we need to have some outward manifestation of clinical signs because we certainly can have uh, histologic or microscopic evidence of enlargement of the pars intermedia in a horse that's 10 or 15 years of age that might be put to sleep for other reasons. We look at its pituitary gland, but they have no outward signs of Cushing's disease or PPID. So we like the idea of combining PARS intermediate to focus that it's on the pars intermediate that's become abnormal and then also dysfunction meaning that there's clinical signs associated with the syndrome.
0: Well that's again that's that's some great information. I've never heard it put together quite like that before. No wonder you, people love you as a teacher. So let's uh, talk a little bit about laboratory findings for Cushing's horses. So if you're a veterinary in the field and you're going to do one of your tests, What are you looking for to say, okay, this horse has
1: PPID? Okay, so we talked a little bit about ACTH concentration, and so that's really the screening test that we do. Um, And an elevation in ACTH concentration could be supportive, uh, once it gets over certain thresholds, supportive of the disease along with presence of clinical signs. That's really the screening test. The nice thing about ACTH is it's, uh it it, it's not too variable over the course of the day so you know a veterinarian can you know pull the blood um on a course that's you know 10 o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon or at the end of the day and so there's not a huge uh, change through the day to make it more complicated for testing Um, it also seems to be pretty stable so you know as long as they Pull the blood sample in what we call a purple top or EDTA tube for plasma and put it in the cooler in their truck. And then they can spin it down when they get back to their office at the end of the day and then send it off to the lab for testing. So it's a, a pretty stable hormone to go ahead and be able to measure that. Um, and also it doesn't appear to be all that much affected by feeding. So again, whether the horse just ate or, you know, is, is fasted, doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. So it's, it's become a relatively uh, useful screening tool for PPID. I mentioned that MSH can also be measured. Um, um, there's not a commercial laboratory that offers the MSH right now, and there doesn't appear to be a, a whole lot of an advantage over measuring MSH versus ACTH. So the commercial labs are basically uh, using the ACTH uh, assay to measure that. Okay,
0: and what about you mentioned time of day and feeding and so forth? What about time of year when
1: you're testing? So that's a great question. Um, and so, again, there's another story about that that's uh, interesting. So, um, again, at New Bolton Center, uh, Mark Donaldson was one of their field services veterinarians for a while that was doing some work on PPID. And the behaviorist there, Dr. Sue McDonnell, has a group of feral ponies that they study. And they also had a group of about 10 standard bred mares that they used for teaching students how to palpate the reproductive tract. And so Dr. Donaldson wanted just to sample those horses and look at their ACTH concentrations. So he sampled them in September the first time, and these guys didn't have any really clinical signs of Cushing's disease, but he found a number of them had elevated ACTH concentrations. So... He sort of didn't know what to do with that data, so he came back and resampled them in January and found that they were all normal. They were all low, and so he said, "Well, what happened in September?" So he he um, sampled them again the following September and found again a number of them had elevated ACTH concentrations. So then, going back and looking at some of the literature, we recognize that a number of species that are, um, you know, large animals and and uh, you know live outdoors, obviously they tend to have some changes in their physiology in preparation for winter. And so one of those changes is increased activity of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis to try to develop some fat stores and to try to make them more ready to go through the winter months. And so that seasonal increase in uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis activity in the fall will lead to an increase in ACTH concentration in horses that don't have PPID. So when we first started thinking about this or, or when Dr. Donaldson published his paper, we started to say, well, it's not a good idea to test horses in the fall because we can have a spurious increase in the ACTH concentration. But then a group in the United Kingdom that tests uh, a, a large number of samples go through their laboratory at uh, Andy Durham's Liphook Equine Hospital started to look at the number of samples that were submitted per month around the year and he found again this seasonal rise in ACTH in healthy horses in the fall but when they looked at the horses with some subtle and and more advanced clinical signs of PPID they saw that that seasonal increase in the fall was much more dramatic in the PPID affected horses so then we changed gears again and said hey well maybe actually looking at the fall rise in uh, ACTH and PPID horses, because it is more uh, dramatic or, or more exaggerated in the PPID horses, that you could actually use the fall months to test for PPID and using just a higher cutoff value for uh, normal versus abnormal. So that seasonal variation now became a tool that we can use. And I still recommend that today. You know, if you look at a horse that's got a few long hairs in the springtime, but's otherwise healthy, um, you know, and you might measure an ACTH and it's normal and you say, well, what's going on here? Well, if the horse is in the early stages of disease, it may not need treatment at that point. And you could say, well, you know, maybe we should screen this horse uh, end of September, beginning of October to see if we have a more dramatic increase in ACTH. And let's look at clinical signs six months later and see if maybe that horse might then, you know, warrant consideration for treatment for PPID.
0: That's that's great. Thank you for sharing that with us. and. Is there anything else on the treatment or especially the management of PPID horses that veterinarians can help clients
1: with? Yeah, so, you know, great question. So these horses are typically getting older. So obviously they need a good evaluation for their diet, their body condition score, uh, dentistry, deworming, just make sure all the basic preventive medicine is performed and that we look at uh, the horses, you know, nutritional status as well. The other thing is that, again, the most devastating complication or clinical problem with PPID is going to be laminitis. And it looks like the horses with laminitis that concurrently have PPID are also affected with insulin dysregulation. So when we first evaluate an older horse, in addition to screening for ACTH, we recommend to also measure a basal insulin concentration and a glucose concentration. At the very beginning, I mentioned that some of them can be diabetic. That's relatively rare and usually only with more advanced Cushing's disease or more advanced PPID. But just a good overall general physical exam of the horse and documenting its body condition score because PPID horses can be thin and they can be fat if they're fat they're more likely to have concurrent insulin dysregulation. And so, you know, managing the horses would, you know, independent the PPID, if it's getting a little thin and it's getting a little older, it might need to get some equine senior added to its diet. Um, if it's a little bit overweight, that's going to be, you know, have big crusty neck. We might be thinking, you know, that's the, the, the kid's horse and the kid's gone off to college and nobody's riding it anymore and it's getting a little bit fat and we might need to work on a diet to try to uh, decrease the risk of, of laminitis from the concurrent insulin dysregulation that is worse in horses that are overweight. Um, and then, you know, basically, uh, it's a horse-by-horse horse case to decide whether or not treatment is warranted, okay? The treatment is quite effective when we did the FDA trial for pergoli that now is licensed as percent. We found that about uh, two-thirds of those horses improved quite substantially in response to treatment. That was included in improvement in clinical signs and improvement in endocrine test results as well. Now, you know, the problem with it is it's not completely inexpensive. It's going to be a couple dollars a day to put the horse on pergolide, and over the course of the year, you know, that can add up. So um, depending on clients' resources, horses you know, may or may not go on treatment. If they're in the early stages of disease and just have a little bit of problem with shedding their hair coat, they don't have laminitis, perhaps body clipping and just good attention to grooming might be enough for treating those horses. Um, if they have laminitis, we're much more likely to treat them with pergolide to try to stabilize the laminitis. It's important to recognize that pergolide is not a specific treatment for laminitis. And that's been a little bit misconstrued out there in uh, in in the veterinary practice that you know, a number of horses that develop acute laminitis might also be treated with perlite. It's not going to have a direct effect on improving the laminitis. But if their uh laminitis is associated with PPID, getting the uh the PPID under control a little bit better may allow the laminitis to settle down a little bit better and maybe have less flare-ups and and, you know, less of a problem over time. Okay.
0: And is there anything else that you can think of, Dr. Schott, that you would like to share with us this morning? Well, I, this has been great, we've learned a lot, but is there anything else that you uh, would like to add?
1: Well, I guess what I recommend, especially for, you know, veterinarians in practice, especially younger veterinarians is, you know, when you're doing your spring shots and your annual health assessments of these, of horses, um, Add in a body condition scoring every time you go out and look at the horse, and that helps you catch horses that are starting to get a little bit overweight and maybe you know get predisposed to insulin dysregulation. Um, And if they're getting overweight, you know, talk to clients about implementing a weight management program. Again, as the horses get older, you know, fifteen years or so uh, beyond that, and you're doing your annual checks on them, look a little bit closer. Do they start to show some signs of these longer hairs? Ask them, uh, the clients, you know. How's your horse shedding out this year? And and start talking a little bit more about PPID. Because I think, you know, if we recognize it in institute therapy a little bit earlier, uh, there's no guarantee that it's going to prolong or make the horse live longer. But during its later years, treatment does seem to improve the overall quality of life for these horses. Okay. Well, that is great. Very great. Thank you, Dr. Shot,
0: so much for joining me today on this episode of Disease Du Jour. And we'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. And a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. We invite you to listen to all of the Disease Du Jour episodes that we've had on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K brown at equinenetwork.com. Disease de jour production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network LLC. We also want to add that we're going to put a couple of resources in the article that go with this podcast That uh, from the Equine Endocrinology Group that Dr. Schott mentioned, and also from the PPID Working Group that had some recommendations for diagnosis and treatment. Thank you again, Dr. Schott. Thank you.